The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Well, a little bit more volatility this week as all kinds of news are permeating the markets. The biggest one was a rating agency has downgraded the U.S. debt. It was S&P in 2011, and now it is Fitch. All of this troubling the market. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplavin. Welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Coming up on today's program, we will start off with our technician, Jim Welsh. Jim was last year telling people we weren't going to have a recession. Now that everybody believes we're not going to have one, Jim says, well, I think one's coming. So you're going to want to hear what he has to say about that and his reasons behind it. He's also expecting a 5 to 7% correction or maybe more here in the short term in the market. And then later on, Frank Holmes from U.S. Global will be on the program. As we take a look at the gold markets, Frank's a little bit concerned about the high leverage of short positions on the COMEX that's influencing the precious metals market, especially gold and silver. But first... Joining us on the program is Jim Welsh of Macro Tides, and we are going to post Jim's chart pack on our website so you can follow along with the topics that Jim and I are going to discuss. Jim, let's take it from the top. What are the charts telling you when it comes to the market? It's been a strong year in the market so far. A lot of this driven by the AI stocks, but where do you think we're heading from here? I think in the near term, Jim, we're set up for a pullback. Uh, of five to seven percent, primarily because what we're seeing is treasury yields, especially the 10 year, move above four percent. And I wrote about this uh, this past Monday in my weekly technical review in that last week we saw the Bank of Japan make a change to their monetary policy. So over the last few years, as the Federal Reserve and ECB, have been increasing their policy rates, you know, in terms of the Fed, it's over 500 basis points. The Bank of Japan has left their policy rate at 0.1%. The change they made last week, Jim, is related to what they do in terms of yield curve control, where they have limited the increase in 10-year yields. Uh, Last December, they raised it to 0.2%. And then last week, they, pardon me, last December, they increased it from 2.2 to 0.5. Last week, they then made a big shift going from 0.5 to 1%. So to me, that was very significant because in a sense, in terms of global government bond yields, the Bank of Japan has kind of been setting the floor. And now they've increased the floor. And my take was that that was likely to cause treasury yields to rise with the 10-year jumping above 4% and then continue to head higher. And what we've seen over the last couple of days, the 10-year, I believe, uh, this morning got up to 4.2%. And the charts suggest that it's headed higher. And how that will impact the stock market is last year, what we saw is Treasury yields went up. The mega cap stocks got hit the hardest. Why? Because they have extreme valuations. And as the cost of money goes up, those valuations get compressed. So to me, near term, if the 10-year continues to climb, as I think it's likely to do, that is going to put pressure, I think, on mega cap stocks 
Uh, and as those stocks correct, I think they will, uh, you know, pull the overall market down with them. Jim, where do you think this could go? Could we be talking about 5% yields on treasuries? Yeah, I've been writing about this, Jim, in, in terms of the price pattern uh, on treasury yields. As we all know, in the spring of 2020, they made, you know, incredible low yields, right? And they've been moving up in a stair-step fashion since then. And uh, the there was a low or high in yields last October. And to me, that was wave three of what I anticipate to be a five-wave advance in treasury yields. Last October, I thought we would see a decline in treasury yields, which subsequently happened, a 10-year drop by about 100 basis points. But I've been in the last uh, month or so, like, hey, we're at a, an inflection point where potentially... At a minimum, we're going to see treasury yields go up a decent amount and potentially break out above that high that we saw last October. And if that happens, the 10-year can easily get up to four and a half or more. And, um, you know, so that to me is the near-term risk. And a lot of things have come together, Jim. On one hand, the economy continues to show resilience. A year ago, people, or last October, people were still really, really worried about a recession that has given way to the idea that, hey, we're not going to have a recession. In addition, the Treasury uh, has just announced that they're going to be ramping up the amount of bonds for sale during the third quarter. So that increased supply is going to weigh and you know, act as a, a push up on Treasury yields. Technical analysis suggested that, okay, things were not healthy. Uh, and then finally, you get the downgrade and what the Bank of Japan did it's a little bit like a perfect storm. So we're at, an, I think, an, you know, a critical window of time here that Treasury yields, if they continue to ramp higher and get above last October, then the stock market, I think, would be vulnerable to a much bigger decline than just a 5 to 7% correction. It all is going to come down to, and I know we're going to talk about this, uh, in terms of when do we start seeing you know, the, the economy slowing down more obviously so that it starts to undermine you know the narrative that oh boy we don't have to worry about a recession uh which has kind of dominated the markets in the last 30 days or so well it's amazing because facts that just talked about this is the third consecutive quarter of declining corporate earnings so we're seeing pe multiples expand jim but it's just simply investors are willing to pay more for lower earnings. I, 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 I want to come back to the economy and the deficits. Let's move on to some other things that are moving. We, we just talked about the stock market. Uh, let's talk about oil prices, because a good factor that has brought inflation down has been the drop in energy from last year when we were at, what, $110 a barrel. We got down below 70, and here we are over 80. What happens if the oil markets tighten well, it, it, well, again, part of the narrative in last late last year, as you know, because you get my stuff, I was looking for a really big decline in the consumer price index because the takeaway values for the first six months of from last year were really big, and so you were going to see this mathematical decline in the CPI. I thought it could get down under four percent late last year. I was like, hey, it would sounded outrageous uh, with how high it was back then. But the, the point you're making, Jim, uh, in this mathematical calculation, in July of last year, the CPI was unchanged. So instead of subtracting 
which is what was taken off from June of last year, it's a zero. So that means if the CPI goes up as much as it did in June during July, 0.2%, the headline CPI is going to go from 3 to 3.2. And I think the odds of that are high because, as you just noted, uh, energy prices are up 14% during the month of July. Uh, gasoline prices up 7%. Combine those two things make up about 8% of the CPI. So the, to me, the risk is that the CPI for the month of July, when it's reported in mid-August, goes up the, more than 0.2. So all of a sudden, the headline CPI is going to go from 3.0 to maybe 3.3. And as we know, you know, people have concluded that, hey, the Fed's won the inflation battle because it's gone from nine down to three. Any uptick in inflation is going to make me people think, whoa, maybe the Fed will have to raise rates when they meet in September. So that next CPI report that comes out, uh, uh, I can't remember if it's August 12th, something like that, uh, I think is going to have a dose of negative news compared to the great news that we've been getting for the last eight months on inflation. So uh, that's going to be a hurdle for the market to uh, have to deal with. I want to deal with something that, uh, you know, if we we go back last year when the Fed started raising interest rates, of course, they said inflation was temporary. Then it turned out to be temporary and they went on an aggressive rate raising cycle. But we had two negative quarters of GDP uh, growth the first two uh, quarters of last year. So everybody was thinking of recession. Then the economy picked up in the third and fourth quarter. The stock market took off in the first part of the year. And then now we've done a flip. Now there is no recession. And, you know, I'm, I'm finding that a little bit hard to buy, given the fact that we're interest rates. Are, I mean, Jim, you and I live in California where, you know, the average home goes for over a million dollars. Imagine who's going to be able to buy a home here when we have mortgage rates heading to seven and some are even talking possibly eight. Yeah. Um, you bring up a great point. Uh, in the August macro tides uh, issue that went out on Monday, and I'm happy to send it to any of your faithful listeners. All they have to do is send me an email, Jim Welsh Macro, and I'll send it to you. I talk about exactly what you're talking about, Jim, in that the rate of change on inflation, as we've just discussed, is coming down from 9%, came down to 3 It may stagger a little bit in the low threes for a little window of time. And people are going to say, oh, gee, inflation problem has been solved. You know, we're back to normal. No, the average house price has gone up by 35 to 40 percent. Car prices went from uh, 38,000 on average to 48,000. We know what grocery prices have done. So what happened is while we had that burst of inflation, it lifted the cost of living significantly above the 18 percent increase in wages that has occurred since December of 2019. So yes, the annual rate of change of inflation is coming down from nine towards 3%. Maybe it'll get down a little lower than that. But the reality that faces most uh, consumers and most people trying to make a budget with their income and expenses is that the cost of living has ramped significantly higher. And I think that's one of the misconceptions that people have or not recognizing that the cost of living has gone up a lot. And over time, you know, that will erode the purchasing power of current income, which implies that economic growth will be less because the cost of living has gone up so much and people's income is going to have to adjust to that 
once we saw, you know, see the excess savings that built up during the pandemic, once they're used up, now we're dealing with the reality. We've seen a big increase in delinquencies on car loans, credit card loans. So we're seeing some of the cracks show up in consumer finances, Jim. And it's exactly to the point that you're raising in terms of the cost of living going up. And, um, you know, it, it's a real challenge for the majority of people. On the economy, just let me interject. Last year, uh, I did not think we were going to be in a recession. And I went through a lot of things after the first two quarters of GDP were negative. One of the things I talked about was gross domestic income, which is income of all sources, wages, interest, earnings, you name it. Gross domestic income was up in the first half of last year, which to me was one of the reasons why the idea of a recession was just off base. But in the fourth quarter and first quarter of this year, gross domestic income declined, even though GDP went up. Historically, these two lines come together. And I think the decline in gross domestic income is pointing the direction, if you will, that we're going to see income levels. And we've seen it in the sense of hours work being cut back and so forth. We're going to see, I think, that show up more meaningfully, coupled with this higher cost of living, why I think uh, the risk of recession over the next six to nine months finally is at a point where I think people should be concerned about it. The irony is it's at a point in time where everybody's given up the idea of a recession. And sometimes works markets work perversely like that, Jim. They were worried about a recession last year when they didn't need to be, and now they're not worried and they ought to be. You know, it's the same thing with uh, we take a look at earnings. Uh, I was looking at some of these big cap, mega cap stocks that have driven the S&P uh, with AI. And Jim, I was looking at the earnings, whether it was Microsoft, whether it was Amazon, whether it was Apple. And what I found when I went through their quarterly reports is what you would expect with the economy slowing down. The rate of increase in revenues was falling. The margins were falling profitability was falling and profits were falling. And so, you know, if there was AI impact, it wasn't showing up in the financials. What I was seeing is what you would expect to see when the economy's slowing down, lower earnings. And that's backed up by FactSet, by the way. So I think the, the market has some surprises ahead of it. It does. And again, it's predicated on the shift we've seen from, oh God, I'm worried about a recession. Uh, late last year, going into the early this year, to now, gee, nothing to worry about. Um, and that shift then has Wall Street expecting earnings to grow in coming quarters, Jim. So yeah, the last few quarters have been negative year over year, but Wall Street's expecting the trough to happen in the second quarter and better times are about to come. So, you know, to me, um, looking at uh, the inverted yield curve has a, a lead time of about 19 months. Leading economic indicators have been down for 15 months in a row and have uh, you know reached a level that has always preceded a recession. Uh, but they have a lead time of about 10 months. So a lot of these long dated recession indicators, last but not least is bank lending standards, which again got raised in the second quarter. All of them take time to bite. And all of them suggest that between now and your end, we're going to see the weight of them bearing down on the economy. The only question I have, and I don't really honestly know the answer other than to frame the question, which I think is important, is how soon is that going to happen? I have, in my mind, have no doubt 
we're going to see a, a very sharp slowdown in the economy, likely going into a recession as we get into next year. Is, uh, is the evidence of that going to show up in the next 30 to 60 days, or is it going to wait until November, December? And what's been powering and sustaining the market, and, and in a sense, giving the market the legs to overcome what you were talking about as far as earnings, is this expectation of hope that, hey, things are going to be getting better. So until we see decided evidence that the economy is slowing materially, that ned narrative of, hey, we got to buy in because the economy is going to be okay, earnings are going to go up. The, in the short term, the snag could be, as I outlined earlier, is that that faith in the economy accelerating from here is in part what's causing treasury yields to climb, which I think, as I said, sets the market up for a 5 to 7% correction. A deeper correction will have to wait until we see the narrative that the economy's on good found, uh, you know, foundation get challenged by real softer data coming in. It's, as I said, I have no doubt it's going to come. The only question is when, and the longer it's out, the market still has the potential to have a correction and then rally again before that bad data really kind of you know blows up the no recession narrative. So that's, to me, where we're at. Yeah, because uh, one of the things you highlight in your recent newsletter about the lending, the tightening of lending by banks, what is it, 50.8%, 68% have increased the spread on their loans. So, you know, I don't know, quite honestly, Jim, how people can afford to buy a home here in California now, or, you know, places like New York, where we call millionaires homeowners in California, <laughs> because literally, I mean, it's it's really, maybe you could find a garage for under a million, but most homes are a million plus. Uh, you know, I get these flyers in the mail. Uh, I just saw a house that had, Jim, 2,900 square feet down uh, the block, a couple blocks away, and it's it's going for $2 million. Now, who's going to be able to afford to buy a $2 million house, a 3,000-square-foot house? You're not talking about a McMansion when mortgage rates are at 7%. Uh, th that's a big problem. But what's sustaining housing prices is the incredibly historic low inventory. So until we see something that really causes inventory, in other words, the supply of homes to start to increase, you kind of got this weird equilibrium where despite mortgage rates being where they are, there's still enough demand to, to hold prices somewhat steady. Uh, I think that's going to change, Jim, as we get into next year. If I'm right, that by early next year, we're going to be in a market slowdown in the economy, if not recession, and the unemployment rate starts to tick up, then it's only a question of when we start to see supply increase. And as I think existing homeowners see prices actually falling, then there's going to be some people who are thinking about selling over the next one or two years and the supply starts to come out of the woodwork because, gee, holding this house anymore isn't going to benefit me with higher prices. If prices start to fall, it gets more people to think, well, maybe, honey, we ought to, maybe we should consider downsizing sooner rather than later. So those are the dynamics, Jim. I think you need to see an increase in supply that, that will really impact uh, pricing because you're right. The affordability factor is, is awful. It just is not just here in California. It's extreme here, but nationwide, uh, the affordability because of mortgage rates and the price increases that have occurred the last two and a half years 
uh, have made affordability uh, a really big challenge. I want to talk about uh, one more factor here, and that's the downgrading of U.S. debt. Uh, it's my understanding the Treasury is going to have to raise nearly $2 trillion to fund the government's budget in the third and fourth quarter. Jim, that is a lot of money. We are now approaching $33 trillion in debt. And Jim, it was six weeks ago, we just crossed $32 trillion, and now we're going to hit thirty-three. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, those numbers are unsustainable, Jim. And obviously, with the increase we've seen in interest rates, the borrowing costs that are embedded, interest expense in the budget, I think has the potential uh, before the end of this year to cross $1 trillion. So all of a sudden, you, you know, what used to be maybe a one to one and a half percent budget item interest expense is going to be ramping higher to 3% and above that, which then begins to squeeze other programs in terms of their spending. So the ramifications go beyond just the deficit, the amount of debt, it starts to impact uh, the functionality, if you will, the budget. So, you know, to me, this is at some point in time, this is going to matter a great deal. Um, you know, I think in the very near term on interest rates, what the Bank of Japan is doing is probably a greater impact on what's happening in the Treasury market today. But longer term, to me, ultimately, this issue, along with a number of others, as we've had prior conversation is what gets you into what I would call a secular bear market, where things like interest expense, budget spending, the problem of dealing with budgets, the inability of Congress to move beyond dysfunction to address these issues become something that takes five to 10 years to resolve. So um, I agree with you. This is unsustainable. It's a problem. But in the near term, most people are not focused at all on that, Jim. They're focused on the idea, I think the economy is going to avoid a recession, earnings are going up, and happy days are going to be here yeah, already. You know, I mean, I think that, unfortunately, people are so focused short term that these abstract stuff, you know, just doesn't register at the level it should. And the net result is the problem just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and it'll get to a point where it's almost unsolvable. And that's when things really will get challenging. That may not happen for five years. And when it does, though, it's going to be a big time problem. So if we were to sum up, according to the facts that we've, we're now three consecutive quarters of declining earnings, banks are tightening lending standards, the yields on treasuries are going up, the deficit is exploding, interest rates are rising. Um, Jim, given this scenario as an investor, what would you be doing here? Well, I I think lightening up makes sense. Uh, at the same time, I'm going to acknowledge, Jim, as I said earlier, until we see more signs that the economy is slowing, the uptrend can you know remain intact. I, as I said at the very outset, I think a correction of five to seven percent uh, in the near term is certainly uh, probable. It, it just comes down to after that, we need to see signs that the economy is really slowing. And when that does appear, and I have no doubt it will, then I think the market's going to be vulnerable to a much, much deeper uh, correction. Because as you've noted, you've got all these negatives, but people have been ignoring them because, again, they think the economy is on sound footing and is going to continue to grow. So until that is undermined, you know, you have the buy the dip mentality that's going to continue. 
I think there's a hiccup coming because of what's happening with treasury yields in the near term. But the most important thing is getting to that place where we see the economy slowing enough that people start to question whether a recession will be avoided. That time is coming. It's just a question, is it 30 days? Is it 120 days? But it's coming. And that's why I think people should be pretty cautious. Uh, do not, I think, add to you know portfolios or exposure at this point in time. And you know, to the extent that people are able to do this, look at positions you have and try to put a stop loss. You know, that in other words, the market declines by much more than seven percent, then that to me would be an indication that a deeper decline is is unfolding. So to me, that that is kind of how do you manage this risk in a very uncertain time. To me, that would be one approach. All right, Jim. Well, listen, as we close, we're going to post your latest update on our website. So if you're listening to this program, you'd like to follow the great information that Jim has put out, uh, we're going to make that available on the website. And Jim, give out your website or email if our listeners would like to get a copy of your latest Macro Tides. Uh, email Jim Welsh Macro at Gmail, and I'm happy to send out uh, the August Macro Tides to you. Additional information can be derived by just going to macrotides.com. All right. Well, listen, Jim, as always, thanks for coming on the program. Have a great rest of the summer. Hey, Jim, I really enjoy our conversations. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss things in more detail than otherwise uh, allowed. I'm sure your listeners derive great benefit from the conversations you have with all your different guests. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, this week, the U.S. debt got downgraded. This is the second time in a little over a decade there's actually companies that have better debt ratings than the U.S. government. Well, what does this mean for the precious metals market? Joining us on the program is Frank Holmes. He's CEO of U.S. Global. Frank, let's talk about Fitch's rating, your thoughts on this, and especially with the government having to raise nearly $2 trillion of new debt issuance in the third and fourth quarter. Yeah, I, I think that um, that there will always be these imbalances between fiscal and monetary policies. And for simplicity, it's a binary model, like zeros and ones make up the internet. So you have monetary policy and you have fiscal policy. Monetary policy also bifurcates to either money supply or real interest rates. That is what the government is charging above the inflationary rate. And the fiscal policy is tax and spend. And where are they going to spend? So the greater the big this imbalance then the more important is to have alternative asset classes like gold. That's what history has shown. And for this century, the past 23 years, gold has outperformed the S&P by 200%. Not a little, but 200%. And Ray Dalio, who runs the largest hedge fund in the world, 
having a position in gold from 10 to 25%, and he calls the parity trade of rebalancing. So I, I think that, that Fitch is saying that there's a big imbalance. Uh, their job is not to go and say buy gold. That's what my suggestion is to this, this downgrade. But they're trying to highlight that there is a difficulty in on a relative basis of the income that's coming in, the tax collection, and all the spending. Now, is the money being spent going to have a high return on invested capital and that there, where the government is deploying the money, or is it just into social welfare programs of some form or nature? Uh, and, and the more it goes into social programs, then, then you have to be at risk that the fitches of the world are going to downgrade you and it'll make it more difficult to fund do funding. Frank, I'd like to catch your point on gold, though. So we've had this. We've had the highest inflation in nearly four decades. But gold has struggled to get beyond 2000. Every time it's done, it's been trying to do that since March. But it doesn't stay there long and it falls below just like it has done now. Well, you know, I, I think that I'm not into this all this conspiracy thinking about the government and gold. But there does seem to be. Uh, something that goes on that so many J.P. Morgan traders have been charged, found guilty, and then J.P. Morgan writes a check. And I scratch my head and, and say that if you look at the mechanism, then the futures market is, can be leveraged up to 10 to 1, 20 to 1. We have seen something like $50 billion worth of uh, money go into, into the GLD. Uh, and, and it's much easier from a financial point of view to try to do everything to mute the rise in the price of gold by using futures against the GLD position. So if all Americans are putting their money into gold, GLD, um, then it's very easy against a futures market to be able to suppress that because the banks can get so much leverage. So this is, this is sort of a, a real interesting dilemma because now the push to get Bitcoin and, and would this be the cap in Bitcoin? Because when they first came up with the futures market, it did cap Bitcoin and it did fall in 2018. Now they allow an ETF and the retail money does not go into exchanges to buy this. Now they can sort of um, manage the price action, the futures. I think that's a, I've listened to people discuss this. and I think it's a very interesting uh, theory because I've really experienced it in the world of gold. Um, but central banks around the world continue to buy gold and the premium on getting gold coins or silver coins is telling you that the physical demand remains very robust and strong. And it's only so long that any government can suppress or mute the uh, price action of, of gold uh, against the currency that it doesn't have a rocket move on the upside. So I think the idea that the, the Bitcoin universe, they love this expression called HODL, and which H-O-D-L, which means hold on for dear life. And the other one they love to say is buy the dip and hold on for dear life. Well, I clearly believe that that's a great concept for gold investors. Uh, and gold investors that have bought the dip, uh, and we will get these sort of declines, uh, that they'll, they'll do well. And we had that in the 70s happen, where they had to take interest rates substantially above the inflationary rate. So right now, they changed the CPI number again in the past uh, 18 months. And, and so if you're using the 1980 
CPI algorithm, inflation is running 10, 11%. That's the real inflation. Um, so that would say if you want to really break the, uh, make the dollar the strongest currency, you're going to have to reach maybe the 12 or 15%. The, Volcker had to do that. Inflation ran to 12 and he took rates to 20%. And that basically broke the back of inflation. Uh, and it's recognizing that we still are functioning in negative real interest rates. So what you do see is that you have this pressure that is on the upside for, for gold and for these other alternative asset classes. Uh, and things like art uh, is another classic, uh, especially the big names in art. Uh, where you go and buy a lithograph of uh, Picasso or you buy one of the thousand prints each year that uh, Warhol did of Mao, but you can go buy Queen Elizabeth. Uh, when, queen, when the queen died, uh, they basically doubled because there's a limit in supply and it's an alternative asset class. So I do see that physical demand for these things that are gold and silver uh, are the premium is very high, and it would suggest that I think silver has to go thirty percent higher to basically try to close that premium that's on on physical silver, rather than being depressed. To, so look at the premiums. As Kitco publishes it daily. Oh, it, it's absolutely amazing. You're paying eighty to ninety percent, and let's go to silver for a minute because you know gold took out its old highs. And when it hit 800, got all the way to 2000, silver got up to 50 in 2011 and then pulled back. It's never been there since. It's never been able to take out its old highs. And we know, Frank, if you're talking about solar panels, the new ones coming out of China require more silver. You've got Mexico's reserves uh, could deplete by the end of the decade. What's your take on silver here? Is the same thing happening in silver? I think so. I think there is this artificial um, suppression of, of it because the physical demand is so high. What we did see from COVID, lots of changes sort of subtle. Uh, one of them is that um, only 8% of people worked at home in 2019. And after COVID, it's 30%. Now that's impacted my Jets ETF, uh, where now there's a million workers that that fly and during the winter they want to fly to cancun or anywhere south and they, as long as there's good wi-fi like we have right now and i'm we're talking from uh, argentina i'm in buenos aires uh and and so they can do all their coding etc and they want to be in warm weather and be able to walk out at night um that led JetBlue to want to buy spirit it's because spirit has the most flights going to the caribbean so you've seen some transitions take place. You've also seen physical coinage all of a sudden go into shortage. You go to Nike stores and they, they'll say that they're not carrying any physical coins, pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters. Uh, and what is that telling you? So I, I think that um, for me, I know I went out and bought um, uh, 3,000, 4,000 4, uh, copper pennies that had the real pure copper uh, pre-1964. And uh, I figured that they're worth about six cents. Um, and, and and I bought them at a discount. I didn't have to pay a premium because they were smelt value. And, and I just said, you know what, I'll buy these because I think it's like a collectible that they're going to have an intrinsic value down the road. And I think that's just a wise part of investing is to make sure you are diversified uh, and, and, 
and also appreciate this new world of quant math of how it does impact valuations and how they use sentiment analysis and what they look at in the marketplace. If, if the if more people look up the price of gold from one week to the next, there's a 70% probability the following week gold is going to be up. But if less people look up the price, it doesn't mean they want to buy or sell. They're just looking up the price. Then gold will be is down the following week. So this is sort of interesting sentiment quant world that looks at this and and they trade around this. You just can't be involved with that noise. You 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 go out and you buy silver coins if you're paying at a premium, and you give those to your kids and your grandchildren. Uh, I've been saying this on your show for a long time. They make phenomenal gifts. They're now, in fact, even with silver where it is, they're at a premium. They're at thirty four dollars. You know, one of the things we've been doing, Frank, for our clients, we've been buying thousand ounce bars on the COMEX uh, to get around these premiums. Because, you know, who wants to pay 80 to 90 percent premium for Silver Eagle? I mean, you're going to have to make 100 percent to break even. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. No, it it, it does to me. Honestly, I I don't want to override you or interrupt you. But if you follow the world of art, and you also understand what's called Metcalfe's law, that as you have a limited supply, Metcalfe's law says that as demand adoption increases, the price action is exponential. So if there are no more silver coins being created and there's a supply restriction uh, and they continue to have this, then we can see prices be much higher. Uh, I think it pulls up silver. I'm a big believer why gold has done so well this century is the rise in GDP per capita in China and India, in particular India and the Middle East. So the GDP per capita uh, rising means that that extra money, they culturally believe in gold. And that's what I've called the great love trade. So every time gold has a big sell-off, it gets a new bid. And the bid is, basically something like 60% of the world's population. Um, and it shows up that 54% of all gold consumption is China and India. Uh, now we start bringing in Southeast Asia, we bring in the Middle East. That number is really important to understand there's a cultural affinity. So gold's number going to sell off that great uh, without all of a sudden that buying comes in. Uh, and, and I think that's what takes it to new highs. So I... I don't become discouraged. Um, uh, I recommend you know, the royalty stocks. Um, I love that uh, Franco Nevada's far outperformed since it went public again in 2008, uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, and that's why I created the uh, ETF GoAU for Go Gold. It's outperformed the GDX and GDXA by a wide margin because it's a very focused small number of names and 30% of these gold royalty companies. So when you get these artificial sell-offs done through the futures market, um, buy the dip. Uh, the gold stocks are, are very uh, two-to-one leverage. They just basically, gold goes up 1%, they go up 2%, gold goes down 1%, they fall 2%. But the quality names that go and go AU and we rebalance every quarter, they show you that by focusing on the companies with the best revenue per share, cash flow per share, and reserves per share, uh, we kick them out. As soon as they don't meet that relative model, um, they will outperform. Frank, a final question. One of the things that we're seeing today that we didn't see maybe two decades ago, if you take a look at some of the big gold stocks, I'm talking Newmont, 
Barrick, your Agnicos, were getting dividend yields that I didn't think existed in the OO decade. I mean, Newmont's close to four, Barrick's two and a half, Agnico's three and a quarter. I mean, any comments on the dividend yields? Because the cash flow and the way they're being managed are much better today than I would say the OO decade. Well, that's a great question. And I share with you being the quad approach of looking at this world. There's just about, after all these mergers in the past seven years, there's a, just under 90 gold producers we track. And, um, and I always like to get what percentage have free cash flow yields. Because if you have free cash flow, that means you can buy more equipment to expand your facilities or you can pay dividends or buy back your stock. And, and back in 2011, it was a less than 11%. Uh, we had free cash flow yields. Today is 60%. So they're much better off. But interesting enough, GoEU doesn't own Newmont because these, these transactions are detrimental for at least 18 months um, on a revenue per share and cash flow per share uh, because they end up issuing more shares than they're actually going to increase. And, and how we see that when we model, if gold goes up 5% for the quarter, then we want to be focused on the gold stocks that went up more than 5% in revenue. Uh, that means that they're showing more value per share. And if gold went up 5% and your growth in your revenue is only 3%, well, that means you've got mining problems. And, and how long does a mining problem usually last? Nine to 18 months. Mergers, 24 months. So we don't we monitor this very carefully to see if management is managing the cash flow well um, and, and how that's tracking relative to peers and to the price of gold for that quarter and the revenue. So a lot of these names, they do have free cash. The yields are, are attractive. They'll probably get a big bounce if gold sells off to about a 5% yield because that's where the short term um, historically in the, in the quant world, a lot of dividend yields are compared to five-year government bond yields. And if you can get a higher yield on a dividend-paying stock than what is a five-year government bond, then and the company can grow modestly, those stocks will perform based on 30 years of data analysis. Uh, when you look at counter currencies, it's usually who has the highest yield for two years. Um, and, and currencies will go up and down relative basis. So rates going up in the U.S. immediately are going to be compared to Europe, to Japan, to Canada, over two-year government yields, and that will move the currencies around. Uh, what moves the dividend-paying stocks is the five-year government yield, and the 10-year is all about the cost of CapEx for infrastructure spending, for building a new mine, et cetera. So it's important to look at what is the cost of capital off that 10-year government yield. All right. Well, listen, Frank, as we close, if our listeners would like to find out about U.S. Global, the funds that you manage, how could they do so, please? Well, you know, if they need something to read before they go to sleep and they'll go to bed early, then read the stuff because it's always positive. Uh, we, we really have focus on a balanced perspective. Um, we look at strengths and weaknesses for the past week. And for next week, we look at potential opportunities and threats. Threats. So we try to be fair and reasonable in how we discuss stuff. So we have, with Frank Talk, they go to usfunds.com, usfunds.com, and they sign up. And for investor alert, these publications go out to about 
150,000 people in 80 countries. All right. Well, listen, Frank, thanks for joining us on the program. Have yourself a great rest of the summer. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888 that's 486 3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says contact us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.